What the fuck is up, Absurdist? Welcome to Electric Chair, where we cover culture, pushing the envelope until it breaks, and give you music that will electrocute your eardrums until they're fried. I'm your host and executioner, Peyton Dunn, and today we're going to be taking a deep investigation into Disc Jockey, an addictive homage to the DJ by hyperpop artist Rilo and EDM producer Waxmail. We'll be locking them up in the interrogation room to grill them on everything from going to school at the nation's leading EDM institute, icon to their absolute hatred for pro tools here's a little preview of what's to come i heard that she had went to film school and i was like okay cool that's like an interesting background to have to go into music but I was like i'm gonna edit the video and like i have all this crazy direction i was like damn like triple threat you know like writer producer like editor that's dangerous before we get our hands dirty with the new song we're gonna have to explore the scene that they built up around themselves by listening to some music from their collaborators with the help of two of my friends Today on the show, I have Shibo Singh and Corey Chun, who are both studying music business with me here at Syracuse and have been lifelong music fanatics. But we're going to change that all here today by subjecting them to three songs of increasing intensity as we torture them in the electric chair. Here's a little sneak peek. I don't know. For me, a voice is like a soul. Old Stevie Wonder. Old Stevie Wonder. Wait, did Stevie Wonder use auto tune? Stevie Wonder used the voice box. Oh, that is so different. That's so different. That's so different. As a hyper pop fan. So now that we have the formalities out of the way, Shibo and Corey, I'd love to welcome y'all to the show. What's up, Peyton? Happy to be here. It's great. This is the first episode. So excited. We're going to be doing these weekly. How are y'all doing? I have heard rumors that Corey might be a hyperpop hater. Hater. Is that fair? Is that very Corey? You know what? I'll assume that role for now, but I would love for that to turn around. Is it fair to say less of a hater, more of a skeptic? Yes. Where will you stand on this? I don't think you're pro hyperpop. And- I wouldn't say I'm a hater at all because i feel like hyperpop has such a scale to it like for example there's an artist osquin she's amazing i actually saw her live over the summer and that's one of the craziest shows i've ever seen the mosh pit to that was absolutely insane but she's got like this heavy synth and i love that like that which song (laughs) i don't remember i just remember like giving it a try and being really pessimistic about it going into it and then leaving it was almost like a pj harvey feel like a deep synth i'm on board for that like tiktok song where it's like i love the show Like, I hate that shit. I don't like the, like... Oh, Sugar Crash? Oh, that yes. song divided the community when that came out. Very much like, so. you oh, either love that song or you hated that song. I personally was on more of the side of I kind of dislike that song just because I don't feel like it was produced that well. I like the song. I think you like the song? Part of what Hyperpop stands for. It's so DIY. And it's really one of the first organic songs to blow up on TikTok. And regardless of if I enjoy the song or not for my sonic pleasure... What it's done for the scene and the community itself is undeniable. Yeah. But the thing is, Eliado wasn't really in the scene before Sugar Crash. That was pretty much like their first, not first song, but that was their first song to really blow up. And nobody in the scene really knew who they were when they came up like that. So it was just kind of, I think it took the scene aback when that happened. It might also speak to the general possibilities when it comes to people just blowing up that have a unique sound. I mean, so many of the artists that... I don't think it was that unique, though. 
it's unique considered for the mainstream is what I'm getting. Okay, that's fair. Because what Eliana did is kind of something the hyperpop community has yet been able to do itself. And I think it needs those people. It needs the Sam Smiths to use the Umu drums. It needs Eliados. Just Eliados very different than Sam Smith though. Like they're not on the you're comparing two people very different levels to each other. No, I'm comparing That's the hyperpop scale I was talking about. about. Interesting A lot of it is more hyper, some of it is more pop. It is what it is. Yeah, for context for people, Corey plays here in this band called Froggies, which is this folk, funk, rock fusion band. So it's basically everything besides hyperpop. It's yes. like it's the antithesis of hyperpop, I would say. Would you say that, Corey? I would have to agree. I mean, everything in me probably goes against the nature of hyperpop. I don't even drink caffeine. Like, my- <laughs> I don't either. I just listen to hyperpop and it gets me hyped up. No, that's what I mean. My heart rate needs to stay below a certain BPM, and there's just something about hyperpop that obviously spikes it so it's just yeah, yeah. you know like the actual physical nature of it you don't like endorphins <laughs> that's totally not the same thing though like, <laughs> endorphins to music yeah hyperpop different thing different that's, thing that's, that's but i will say like during quarantine i was too like down to listen to hyperpop so i do think it does mm-hmm. depend on your mood like at this point i feel like it just like reinforces my mood like that like hyper energy yeah. is already there so it like complements it of course there are moments for it like if i'm driving and i like really need to wake up yeah, but Shibo, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're more on the hyperpop lover side of the scale, I would say. I suppose so. Love is a strong word, but I do find myself listening to a lot of hyperpop. I think Spotify Wrapped is about to come out soon. The face of the hyperpop playlist on Spotify right now is Breakins. Breakins, yes. Be my top yes. artist. Gonna have like 80 to 100 plays on Caffeine, which is one of their songs. <laughs> How are you calculating that? Is that just an estimate? It's 80 to 100? It's just a vibe, yeah. Last it's just a year, vibe. How do you vibe to an 80 to 100? That's so specific. Because last year, I had 47 on Argyle. And oh, this new one. Oh, Wait, was that your most listened to song? It was, yeah. My most listened to song, I think, had like 112 plays. One a year, though? I guess that's true, but it's like one every three days. Like, if I love a song, I'm listening to it five times a day for like three weeks for context argyle also came out in like september or something so that's impressive what if our rap comes out in end november december and it stops tracking like midway through october October. i think yeah Yeah. so it's actually like a lot a lot of plays it's kind of extra so now we got that out of the way do you think we're ready to strap y'all into the electric chair So, the first song that I have prepared for y'all today is Industry Shit by Sebi, who was one of the first artists that Waxmel ever collaborated with in the hyperpop scene. Sebi's a digicore artist from Shanghai who moved to the United States to study graphic design at the Rhode Island School of Design. And even though he transitioned into being a fully-fledged rapper while in college, that didn't stop him from getting his money's worth out of his degree. Each album that he comes out with is themed around a color hex code, and they all feature his signature Pokemon-esque designs. 
Industry Ship was his most successful track off of his 2021 album, VV Red, which saw Sebi leaning away from his signature soft singing voice, instead embracing an abrasive rap style for the new project. This song perfectly epitomizes that change, and its abrasiveness makes it the perfect entryway into our execution session here today. So without further ado, here's Industry Shit by Sebi. I be on my industry shit, that's right, yeah, I'm a fan of industry, bitch, on site, get that industry bag, yeah, I get that shit twice, and I did it independent, put that shit on my life, now I got industry bitches, yeah, they wanna talk, and I got Instagram bitches, yeah, they wanna flock, I'll run you bitches, yeah, you used to be the job, do it so fast, yeah, I think I just beat the clock. Okay, so Corey, opinion. So, immediately, when I'm trying to think if I like a song, I think of if it has bite. That song has bite. That song has bite. So did that you song, like it? So yeah, like I'd say like surface level. Yes, I liked it. I need to. Okay, like, it's just the first round. We have a lot more to go. So don't get cocky with us. But that's good. That's a good sign. Yeah, it's got bite. Shiba, what did you think? I mean, I have more context on Sebi. Older stuff, I like a lot more. This new bitier rap stuff is less melodic. This makes it one of Sebi's less favorable songs. But overall, in the context, it's still a good song. I mean, and he switched back to that kind of soft singing voice on VV Yellow. I think he realized that like even though that hard rapping style was cool and it was interesting and I personally like really enjoyed that style it maybe wasn't like engaging his fan base to the level that the yeah. soft singing voice was and as soon as he made that change to that style it was kind of like where's the soft sebi voice where's the soft sebi voice yeah Classic. a lot of twitch streams and stuff use sebi music often i've seen them do it yep. and i don't think this stuff which a lot of his fan base listens to like on discord or on a twitch stream playing a game doing an irl stream this doesn't cross over nearly as well as his older stuff so i mean yeah he's definitely taken off on twitch like in particular in other streams and i think that all comes back to the fact that he has like his own streams on twitch that are yeah. super engaging absolutely but- and they're just like hilarious shit. I think I did a project on Sebi once and we took this screenshot of one of his streams and it said talking points, money, wop, rackety stacks. It was just different names for money. It was fucking yeah. hilarious. Man. He does such a good job at like satiring rap and its commercialization yeah that and just the way that's like so seamless and you sometimes can't even tell if it's satire I think that's why I really love about hyperpop is like you can't tell whether it's supposed to be serious or not. I think that's right. where his charm doesn't comes take from. itself too seriously. Yeah, I agree. Doesn't also, take itself Sebi, too seriously. That's a good way to put it. Engagement wise, Sebi, something in particular. One of my friends in India, no, that's somewhere the hyper pop scene is not nearly as prevalent. Participated in Sebi's competitions where they remixed Sebi's songs and Sebi would put them on a playlist, and the fans like that stuff. And I don't see a lot of artists, especially big big artists, doing nearly as much of that to keep the fans engaged. He's a fully Over independent drunk. artist. So he right. doesn't have even like a management backing him up. Yeah. So it is kind of hard for him to like push himself in the scene, but he's made himself into a mainstay at this point. And I think that really happened years ago, to be honest. Yeah. Right. I respect like a new artist who lays the foundation and especially like has already created a language with their fan base, no matter how big it is, too. Yeah. I say we move on to the next song, All I Want by Fraxium, who's actually collaborated with both Rilo and Waxmel in the past. 
Fraxium rose to fame in the hyperpop scene for collaborating with Guppy. The two formed the duo Food House, and their debut album will completely alter the paradigm for hyperpop artists for years to come. The album was released on Dog Show Records, which was an independent label started by someone you may have heard of before, 100 Gex co-founder Dylan Brady. All I Want marked Fraxium's return to solo music following that Food House project. And let's just say it's a tad bit experimental. So I'll just let the music do the talking. Here's All I Want by Fraxium. Hit it. Thoughts. Laughing. Okay, that literally plugged me right into a song I made with my girlfriends making fun of one of my ex-boyfriends. Like, How does someone who makes folk, funk, rock, fusion well, make a song that sounds like... What do you mean by it sounding like? Was it like the drum groove or something? What was it specifically um, about that song that reminded you of that? The whimsical melodies that n- did not align whatsoever. Especially in the beginning when it's like mainly just voices and one is kind of being like a little static at at the bottom. The other one's like... (laughs) Braxium is famous for those kinds of like treble, almost soprano, just like head voice runs that are... It it just plays off the auto-tune so well and like leans into its most comical aspects. it, It reminds me so much of like just some SoundCloud rappers who really think they can pull it off, you know? Are you saying those SoundCloud rappers can't pull it off? Say oh god i can't i can't no these are like real life people like real ex-boyfriends oh yes. oh i didn't know you what you dated soundcloud rappers yes what no no they're not see that this was in like ninth grade like when everybody was a soundcloud rapper yeah when every literally everyone and Including their mother me. was a soundcloud rapper back then i so mean still this is no one you would recognize but i'm saying when we broke okay. up to cope me and my me and my friends just made a parody of one oh of his songs, and it I sounded exactly See, that's the context like i the, needed i thought you were talking about your girlfriends meant like, <laughs> no. like i thought this was froggies i thought froggies oh made a song that sounded like all i want by oh fraxium and i was just like what how wow maybe that's a little inspo that's a little inspo you could yeah Sheba, what are your thoughts though i like it i don't particularly think too much of it it's don't think too much of it yeah, I'm not a big tinker like that. You're not a big thinker? <laughs> yeah, tinker. No, no, tinker. I'm a tinkerer. Okay, <laughs> well, I'll try to make y'all hate it more since you seem a little indifferent on it. Here's how the song ends. hard hard have i shocked y'all enough yeah i actually kind of like that. you like it no only it. because it reminds me of being in a car when the windows open and the wind is like heavy that it makes oh that noise. and i kind of like that sound see like, like when you say a car like the, like your head out of the car i'm just envisioning like like oh it's a happy-go-lucky <laughs> moment it's like a vacation like I, i'm envisioning like you're saying like oh this song's like a nice walk on the beach and i was like have you been on walks <laughs> on the beach Corey? like do no, you know this is like a violent wind in the car so it's more of a sonic thing okay violent wind in the car i think that's getting up there i think i'm i'm close 
to cracking y'all. This, I mean, I'm not gonna crack you, Shibo. There's no way. There was a number. <laughs> okay, should we should we up the voltage a little bit? Let's go. So just in case y'all didn't get enough of Fraxium, I put them on here twice with Knock Knock. The song features Fraxium and Rilo on vocals and is produced by DJ Recode, who's, in my opinion, one of the most promising musical talents to come out of the hyper pop scene in years. I remember when she dropped her sophomore album Recode Pop earlier this year, instantly literally made its way onto every hardcore hyper pop fans albums of the years list before we were even halfway through 2022. That's how crazy the production is. This song in particular was one of their insane follow up tracks of the album. So let's hear it right after this break. Welcome back. Here's our last song on the electric chair for today. Knock Knock by DJ Recode, Fraxium, and Rilo. Okay, okay. Good stuff. Corey? That beginning there sounds like an alt universe Michael Jackson a little bit. Like, what? Listen to the, Michael Jackson. Okay, let's replay it. Let's replay it. Voice. Okay, okay. So you're telling me that sounds like hee hee like uh, yes, how? Giving me what do you mean alternate energy. universe? What universe is that in? It, Michael Jackson Ooh. in hyper pop universe reborn. The, 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 the universe where Michael Jackson wasn't a pedophile. Okay, yes, but okay, also a hyper okay. pop artist. Also a hyper pop artist. Yeah. Interesting. I still don't see how that could be Michael Jackson. It's interesting that they did say that they're a different kind of pop star, which I really liked. They are a different kind of pop star. Yeah, so a hyper pop star. Michael Jackson was a different kind of Michael Jackson was a different kind of pop star in way worse ways. In very very different ways. I suppose. We're as, talking as in being a pedophile. Sonically. Sonically. We're talking, sonically. We're talking his voice just in that part. <laughs> Regardless, I don't know what to take away from that. You Honestly, don't know what to take away. It's like when I listen to like it reminds me a lot of like Skrillexy music, mm. but with Skrill- a- that's one of Fraxium's biggest inspirations. Actually, yeah. they had this lyric on one of their songs that was I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to I'm pulling from the depths of my hyper pop memory here. I used to fantasize about being or kissing Skrillex. Okay, that's the one. That's the one. Love it. I used to fantasize about being or kissing Skrillex. I need to delete Twitter because it gives me fucking mental illness. But no, I see the Skrillex. It's like that whole dubstep revival yeah. kind of thing. Dubstep's definitely making a revival. And it's weird because it's so... Dubstep didn't fall out of the mainstream that long ago. It didn't start being hated until like... 2018. 2018. I mean, let me put it like a little earlier. Like it had its time. It had its prime. 2012 for sure. to 2015, dubstep. Oh, yeah. Rule. 2013 oh God, was like so... peak dubstep era. Yeah. Bang a ring. But it's somehow like. I mean, it's I guess like it makes sense. It's the millennial genre now. It's a. I mean, like they went to the club. It was, it was the millennial genre for a little bit, but Hyperpop's kind of reviving it, mm. I would say. It's making mm. dubstep somehow cool again by playing off of the aspects of dubstep that people hate. Some of my favorite artists, underscores, is what I'm thinking of, use a lot of dubstep. Yes. Yeah. And that to me makes their song so much more interesting. They have this one song, Gunk. It's dubstep folk folk fusion. It's OMG. like that would have been dubstep. the song to play for me. The the song should we play it anyways? Yeah, why not? Because oh. I feel like sometimes hyper pop is like dubstep, but if the bass was pitched up and like doing its own thing, like Whoa. it is the main character and it's so like, interesting about interesting thing about dubstep. Yeah, in the primary stages and evolution of dubstep, I can't name any of the old artists, but all those songs were high frequency and mid frequency sub bass 
Skrillex is mid-frequency sub-bass, but the old ones yep. are low-frequency sub-bass mm. and high-frequency sub-bass. So a lot of the OG dubstep that probably has like 100k plays, the most popular ones even, those are all a lot more like this than Skrillex. Mm, interesting. I mean, it just kind of played off the times, like that move to mid-range bass, because if you like look at how people were consuming, it was increasingly on phones, on laptops, basically speakers that don't have a lot of bass. So the, yeah. you want to keep it more in the mid-range so it can be heard by people instead of just being this like looming quality that's not really going to translate. That scene emerged from London, by the way. But oh, yeah, yeah. The dubstep we know today is way different than that London scene. That London scene was way closer to what we would actually consider dance. And hyperpop, one of the biggest hotspots is. Uh, also came from London. Also yeah. came from uh, came from PC music in London. Yeah. yeah, wild. I mean, London's like been the pusher for a ton of avant-garde scenes yeah. over the years. But this person that we're about to play, Underscores, is not from London. They're from San Francisco, actually, and they moved to New York to study at New York University. Here's Gunk by Underscores. We don't give a. F- That was a fever dream. That was a fever dream. <laughs> like, this is the most fever dream oh song God. of the day. That this is like the shook fourth me to my most fever dream. That choked you. No, I said shook me to my shook core. Shook you, God damn it. I mean, the timeline of it all. I mean, they really like shove you in the Skrillex world once again. <laughs> and then completely snatch you up with the acoustic guitar. You know what? I actually kind of liked that transition as well. You like, God fucking damn it. You're not supposed to like it, Corey. I know, but how can you do that? Like, you went. How from- can you? I mean, they're a genius. Yeah, but like, oh, you're supposed to be the skeptic. Well, I'm supposed obviously, to murder I was y'all. skeptic in the beginning. Y'all are supposed to die by the end of guitar. this. guitar. How am I not going to like it? I'm sorry. Okay. I, I still have some work to do as an executioner, is why I'm hearing. I, I'm going to have to get a little more extreme next time, but. We got you close. We shook you. Yes. Shook you to your core. One of my favorite albums. Oh, yeah, yeah. That album's amazing. I don't know if I like that album, Boneyard, the like one? Fearmonger. I, I don't know I if like I like that as much as Fishmonger. Yeah, I like Fishmonger more than... Yeah, I think, I mean, Fearmonger's like a little bit Fearmonger. better produced, I would say, than Fishmonger, but I would say Fishmonger's a bit more conceptual. Fishmonger is like the beginning of that kind of sound. Before this, Honest Goals was making a lot of edm like general edm kind of yep. stuff with the boy who never left the house that's one of my favorite songs about them that's just edm but this really like innovated an entire new scene within hyperpop sure. called hyperpunk this is where fishmonger release in 2021 is where that all really started and you had like adjacent artists doing similar things around the same time you had like the pop tropica sluts of the world you had your old riches but fishmonger i would say is what really yeah. shook that paradigm and made this entirely new scene yeah this album got it's a crazy. co-sign from travis barker oh yeah i mean yeah. Th- e- even um i think the new album got a co-sign from or no maybe i know fishmonger actually got a co-sign from phoebe bridgers yeah it, it was like this uh another hyper folk type track it didn't have the the dubstep intro but it, it did combine elements it had like an 808 over these acoustic guitars it was crazy It's just, I mean, it's crazy how the scenes come up over the last couple of years. So if you're taking like a hot bath and like, (laughs) (laughs) 
It goes back you to the, the day on low... the beach, the walk on the beach. <laughs> yeah. You need like a candlelit, low vibration vibe. You're going to pull put that on last hyper-pop? song. Out. You're going to put gunk on. Put gunk on. Maybe not gunk, but. Maybe not gunk. Maybe some old break ins. Like, got you. They can keep the key. What might have been lost doesn't bother me. The wolves or sheep with this blood on my hands. I don't even know if old Breakins fits Breakins that has a great voice. See, yeah, like, I respect voice. that in hyper pop artists, is like they're not always modulating their voice. Like, I know they can still sing. Like, that's just a core value as a musician yeah. to me. Really? Yeah, I like that. Again, and, another thing we disagree on then. Yeah. Auto tune to me is like a paintbrush and not a crutch. A lot of people that make music think of auto tune as a crutch, mm. but it's a paintbrush. I would say it's a paintbrush, yeah. Corey, thoughts on auto tune? Auto tune can be very tasteful, but when it's the whole song to me, I get, I don't know, it's just a little cloudy. Like, I don't really know. I don't know. For me, a voice is like a soul. Old Stevie Wonder. Old Stevie Wait, Wonder. Wait, did Stevie Wonder use auto tune? Stevie Wonder used the voice box. And oh, that is so, so not different. The same. That's so different. Are you serious? As a hyper pop fan, no, we that. started with modulation, right? And Stevie Wonder doesn't have nearly as much to do with hyper pop, but one of the first people to completely electronically modulate and get a perfect note on each voice is that. I mean, people have also been comping for fucking decades, which is just another form of manipulating your vocal, really, and creating the perfect vocal take, which is really what autotune's supposed mm. to be. I don't know. And I think going from a talk box to autotune, like, those are definitely way more, or can be way more artful effects than just vocal comping. I, I, there's no such thing, at least in the modern day, as a pure, authentic vocal recording, and mm-hmm. I I don't think it really matters. I agree, when, but I'm saying when it's in the extreme, and I can't even tell where your vocal register lies, like, that's the line. That's kind of the point, though. But that's that's the skeptic in me. And that's the skeptic in you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think you're you're leaving this, this segment, the electric chair, slightly less of a skeptic. Is that right? Completely. Okay, well... Good. I didn't execute them this session, but we'll get them next time. But before we go, like any good executioner, I have to give you all a final meal. So here's our song of the day. Disc Jockey by Rilo and Waxmel. Good stuff. Now, That's before, something I'm playing the shower and dance to. I mean, I would dance to that too. It's got a very danceable groove. Yeah, just, thank you all for hopping on today so much. Thank you, Shibo. Thank you, Corey. Okay. Now, before we get into the interrogation room, let's give you a little overview of our subjects. I met Rilo at a concert she played in Brooklyn, just in between Bushwick and Bed-Stuy over the summer. It was in this old storefront that had been converted into a venue, and this place literally had zero AC. Like, this shit was hot as hell, I am telling y'all. But that just made it even rowdier, and she really played off of that energy. I sent in a request for her to play Knock Knock, which you heard earlier. And when it came time for her verse, literally everyone in the venue was screaming at the top of their lungs. Waxmel comes more from the EDM world than the hyperpop world. And by collaborating with hyperpop artists like Fraxium, Sebi, and now Rilo, he's wedged himself into the scene. 
and I had the absolute pleasure of catching up with him and Rilo to talk about their new song just after the break. Welcome back to Absurdist Electric Chair. Here's our conversation with Rilo and Waxmel. Tell me about the inspiration behind the new track. So I think you already had the song pre-made by the time I came into the session. So when I was writing, it was primarily just a writing session. And then I recorded in the same session. But when I was writing it, it came very easily and very naturally. I don't know why. I feel like with the rhythm of the beat, it just felt very fun and euphoric. So obviously I wanted it to be something danceable and like reminiscent of a night out. But with what was on my brain, I guess that day, you know, just like processing a heartbreak while you're trying to have fun and party. And that is kind of what came together lyrically with this song. Yeah, that's on the production side. So this was like our first session, like me and Riley's first session. And I wanted to just come with five different kinds of beats over the course of the three weeks. But prior to the session, I just made a rap beat. I mean, like a Charlie type beat. I mean, all sorts of different beats that I feel like low could hop on mm-hmm. but the one that you ultimately chose i was kind of actually surprised because i was like i made a bunch of i was like i feel like she's gonna go for this one and you chose like the super dance like edm one that made me feel more comfortable because that was the one beat that i felt like came the most naturally to me and like since i do have like a dance background and it's funny too because the song is called disc jockey and i don't know if it was subconscious for you but there's like a lot of like sax spins and like dj noises and like i thought it was really interesting that you decided to write the song about like the, the hook is you know my they have like a disc right. and there's like there's a lot of like dj elements i doubt um, that it's subconscious honestly but i like don't actively sometimes when i'm like having like sessions where i'm like writing on a spot i feel like i'm like kind of just grabbing at straws and i'm just like yeah. okay what's immediately inspiring me from this song yeah definitely like to reference what's already going on in this song and like the vibe and contribute to what's already there. I think that's like a really fun like writing challenge. So I probably did recognize that I like genuinely don't remember because I wrote it so quickly. Yeah, I- okay. So I wanna I wanna I wanna talk about that really quick. I played around with a beat and then she was like, Okay, cool, I'm gonna write to this. Literally disappears for like forty five minutes and we I'm just like in the studio with other people like, Oh yeah, I think she's writing to it. I don't know what happened. Comes back, she's like, I'm ready, hops in the booth and just like does the entire song. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, because <laughs> usually when writing with, with artists, it's, it's like, okay, this could be a hook melody. This could be an idea. Rilo came in so strong, you know, so that was really cool. I don't really get to write like that very often in sessions with other producers, artists anymore. I feel like that like writing style is very reminiscent of like when someone would send me a beat online, peak quarantine, and I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, what do I do with this? Very like reminiscent of like how I wrote Rat Race or Fan Cam. But mm-hmm. yeah, so like, the process of this was like really nice in the way that there was just like a very distinct separation of the rooms. I could just kind of spitball all of my ideas and just figure out what was the hook and, you know, just like write down all these melodies and kind of reverse engineer it from there, spitting all of my ideas down in like my notes app and then trying to work backwards from there. And that's like when the song I think came together. Cause I, I get self-conscious sometimes where I can definitely work well and write in front of other people. But at the same time, sometimes I'm like, I don't really know if this is like a melody I like. Like, I don't know if I want to like yeah. share the room. Like, but for the sake of collaboration, you have to like 
keep the momentum going. So sometimes it means like throwing out ideas that are not, not really in love with. And you, yeah. And you, and you did great too. And I don't know why that session we had like seven people in the room, like no reason. Like we were just all hanging out. It but. was a good vibe. Yeah. Everyone was like friendly vibes and everything like that. But I think definitely sometimes I feel really self-conscious because I, I didn't, I didn't really start working in like sessions with other producers and like writing in front of people until like last summer, middle of summer of 2021. So it feels very new sometimes still, especially when working with new producers and like having a first session. I'm just like, I hope they don't think my ideas are dumb. (laughs) So I really, I I appreciated the time to kind of just like go in my little writer's cave and then come back feeling really confident in the song. And I, I remember like writing that hook being like, this is good. And I think that with every song that I really, truly like love is like, oh man, this is the best thing I've ever written. <laughs> like, yeah. But I think it's like a really well, well written song with like all of, all of the double meanings. So I, I don't know. I think I, I really was inspired by the, the EDM beat and all of like the ear candy sound design with the backspins and all the immediate DJ references that are in the song already. Plus, I also come from an EDM background, not like production wise, but like what inspired me to get into like songwriting in the first place was all these like EDM top liners. Um, like, cause like some of my favorite like EDM songs, cause that's how I really got into like the idea of wanting to make music was through EDM and Cruella and yeah, yeah. and all those artists around like 2014. What always made those songs really memorable to me were like these like amazing melodies like these crazy just euphoric yeah like big breakdown books yeah Yeah. exactly so i think that's why i was feeling really inspired by that beat that day for sure and rival how do you normally approach working with producers in the studio it really depends at this point i've worked with enough producers where i think i do have kind of an average workflow where it's we'll talk maybe for like 30 minutes to an hour really depends on how much time we have and what the vibes are but we'll talk about you know our day how we're feeling what we've been listening to kind of anything not with the intention to inform the song but you know it always helps to kind of get on the same page and figure out you know where everybody is mentally that day so kind of just like a good vibe check for like the first like 30 minutes to an hour and then kind of get into the meat of the song, how we're feeling, what the attitude should be, play any references if we have any. And then from there, usually the producer will start building a beat um, right there. And then while they're doing that for the first 10 minutes, I'm kind of just watching them do that. And then when they have a good chunk, like a, a good verse build out or like a good just open that I can start writing over freely, then I start writing pretty much all of the core parts of the song, verse, chorus, bridge, whatever, just over what's already there. And it's very much like a a simultaneous process. So like as the song gets built more, I'm also writing more sections of the song. And I usually don't share what I have or any of my ideas until I have a good hold of what I'm writing about and like what the melody is. If I have like a section finalized, I'll probably share section by section. But like typically not one of those artists, not almost like I'm really like trying to have fun where I like go in the booth and just like sing gibberish, which like literally is so productive for some people. But for me, I just get too too self-conscious and I like to like really, really think about 
everything that I'm doing as well. Because also, I don't know, I don't know if other songwriters experience this particular anxiety as well, probably, but like, I don't necessarily want to just like throw out the first melody that's in my head because more often than not, the first melody that's in my head is like either a rip or it's like really leaning on a melody that already exists. And it's kind of just pulling from I've heard before or like pulling too much from the reference or anything like that. So I really like to like sit and think and kind of brainstorm ways to bring what I'm feeling, what like I'm going for, like, I don't know, a great example is like Charlie, like I'm going for like a Charlie type vibe. I definitely want to be super careful and like be really, really meticulous about how I write that song because I think it's way too easy to like sound directly like a Charlie rip. So I like to be really thoughtful about it. In this case, it was just like really easy in the sense where it's like, oh, everything was kind of just like flowing from me immediately. And in that case, I don't want to interrupt that process either and like think about it too hard. So it really just depends on the vibe. No, I, th- I thought it was really cool that from the two sessions I've had with you, I, I think you have a very strong care for like what your what the song is about because mm. i think oftentimes like if i'm working with a, a vocalist they'll just like go in and then they'll just use the you know the gibberish melodies and kind of just like create a song from that but i think all songwriters are the strongest when they're like more care for like the the lyrics than the emotion than the melody almost mm-hmm. but i know like it's not like always that process streamlined but i think that's that's good. And that's what makes good songs. I think so. I mean, I also, I think I'm just like a natural guy. I'm always prone to telling the story and like finding the story. Cause I went to film school. I studied screenwriting, studied story analysis. Like that's kind mm. of my whole thing. It's like, I love world building. I love storytelling. So I don't know, like one of my favorite songs, I think like one of the best pop songs ever is Sunflower. Post Malone, what's that song about? I have no idea. So like, you know, it doesn't necessarily always mean like, you know, if you have a bad story or or an unclear story that it makes for a bad song. But I think if there is also a great story in addition to catchy melody and like really memorable production, then that's all for the better. You know, like the more, the more aspects of the song that you can remember, the better the song is, I think, including the story. Has going to film school impacted any of the other ways that you approach making music? It used to when I was producing more, when I was uh, just producing myself and doing everything by myself, um, for sure. And that was around from like 2019 to 2020. But since working with the producers and opening myself up to like being more of a collaborative artist, it definitely still impacts like how, as I said, like how I write songs and like, you know, how I go about like structuring the songs to tell a full story with an arc. But in terms of like anything else in the music process, not so much. Like I I like the songs to be visually evocative. I want it to feel like you can see a music video in your brain, but that doesn't really impact anything because I really like to give a lot of leeway to like producers that I'm working with. Cause I mean, I know how to produce as well, not really as well as the producers I've been working with in the particular genres I've been working with. But it's like, you know, if all I wanted was if I wanted to be in complete control of everything and like 
really be on top of the sound like that, I wouldn't be in these rooms in the first place. So I feel like, you know, really utilizing the skills of whoever I'm in the room with is like the most important thing to me. But we did shoot a music video for Disc Jockey last week that I did the creative direction for. And that was a very brief mood board that I kind of went off of. Very simple aesthetic wise. But I do think that my background in film made that really possible and really streamlined and easy. I think that was definitely the easiest shoot I've been a part of. Noelle, who was DP that day and also co-director, she also agreed. It was a three-hour shoot. It was really easy in and out. And I think just like, you know, the vision was simple, but at the same time, it was really strong. So I think that also really helped bring it together. Also, like, Ryla knows how to chop the fuck out of the video. I was so surprised because, you know, I, I, I heard that she had went to film school and I was like, okay, cool. That's like an interesting background to have to go into music. But like, I'm going to edit the video and like, I have all this crazy direction. I was like, damn, like triple threat, you know, like writer, producer, like editor, that's dangerous. Yeah. I, that's how I like got into film in the first place. Like I taught myself how to edit and I've been editing probably since I was nine. I really prefer my editing style, but like, I really hated how I learned relearned how to edit through school. I don't like working on Avid. I don't like the sterile nature of feature film editing or, you know, just like narrative structure, like typical narrative structure editing styles. Like it's really not for me. I think it's still fun, but I think I really fall into it when I'm editing to music videos and I can really chop it up, hit every single beat because it just makes for a way more interesting artistic statement. Like even, even though the video is quite simple, you know, in its design, general design and structure really, but it's really fun to look at. And it was really fun to edit because it's just bouncing around all these different cuts and it's super fun. So when I first started editing, I started like editing like AMVs and like I was like the weird AMV kid. <laughs> so yeah, that definitely informed my editing style and it really hasn't like changed too. It's gotten better, but it hasn't like changed too much since I started getting into it. Like, I don't know, 20, 2009, 2008. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously there's this big parallel between video editing software and the DAW. And you mentioned that like going to film school impacted your music making process a lot more when you were still producing. So can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit more about that? Well, the reason I got into like the whole, my whole artist project in the first place is because I was like getting so burnt out with film. And while I was still doing creative stuff, it was all for class and it was just all so structured that it didn't feel fun anymore. Um, so I just, you know, opened a garage band one day and started like messing around. And then I had a lot of fun doing it and wasn't super serious, but I was like, this is like good enough to share. Like this does me no good by like keeping it to myself. Like I've also never had any anxiety about really releasing anything. The first thing I ever made, I'm like Spotify. Yes. Like when I was producing myself, like it definitely was tracking like my progress and as a producer and like what I was learning in my evolution over the time. But even so, like I was production, so I was like very, very different. And I use Logic. I don't use Ableton. And that definitely informs how I produce as well. When I produce, it's like very meandering and I don't really go in with like a particular vibe in mind. And like I might have like one reference song, but 
it takes a really, really long time to kind of like chisel away at what the song actually is and like what the structure actually is. And through working with so many other producers, especially like working with Max, like it's definitely not like, like, especially for, a- for not Avid, Ableton, sorry. I confuse Avid and Ableton because to me, they're kind of the equivalent of each other. Like both like industry uh, standards that kind really? of like. I feel like Avid feels more like Pro Tools to me. I think Avid is, well, Avid is creative. I guess so. That's true. Avid and Pro Tools, that's definitely true. But I just. Pro Tools is like disgusting to look at, by the way. Pro Tools is disgusting to look at. I'm curious about it, but like not (laughs) not that curious. Like the producer that I work with, like maybe like three of them use Pro Tools like regularly. But yeah, for the most part, it is Ableton. And for me, Ableton is just as ugly as Pro Tools and Avid. (laughs) (laughs) I like don't mean to insult Ableton like that, but like that's the reason I've never been able to really get into it just because like the interface is literally ugly which is such a dumb reason to not want to learn no, it's it solid. i mean fl studio is like way friendlier looking and it looks like fun but i think ableton like if you get good at it you can be really quick so that's the thing it's like i think me being in logic all of these years because i i like mm. went straight from garage band and like my first project was made on garage band and then i like was like let me get off of garage band <laughs> so then i went to logic because it's basically you know just the same format so i didn't really have to learn anything too new so i think me being in logic especially doesn't help that i'm working with all these producers who've a been producing for years b have also been producing on ableton for years you know like they're so 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 fast and like when i'm producing i feel like i'm kind of painting in a way like it's very much like okay like let me do a little yeah because ableton can feel kind of programming you know Mm -hmm. logic is great though i I, have used logic before i think logic is like really clean sounding it's really easy to get like a really nice clean sound for sure did you ever use like iMovie or anything yeah i feel like because Because when I was a kid, iMovie was like, I use iMovie a lot for like YouTube videos and like, and then I got into GarageBand just like you. And I felt like those, that transition was so easy because they're like both Apple, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. The iMovie to Final Cut from GarageBand to Logic Pipeline is like, very, very it's real. real. It's very real. It's very sure. real. Yeah. So I, I, that's how I started editing was on iMovie. So I've always kind of been more or less an Apple affiliate. And that's like always come really easily to me but yeah when i'm producing myself it's like also me trying to figure out how to tell a story sonically i feel like most producers they're really like they're so skilled where they can tell a story and do it in 20 minutes or a lot of people are just like let's make a cool beat a lot of people don't necessarily approach production especially with an artist in session in that particularly like artistic statement conceptual way you know it's just like how can we make a really contained song that fits the vibe of what we're going for max i want to talk a little bit about the collaborations that you've been doing like specifically in the hyper pop space because i feel like that's not really like your musical core so what drew you to working in that space so that's a good question so when i was 17 i well first of all so when i was 12 i started djing and I, i like i had an older brother like seven years older than me, he would always go to raves. And I really wanted to like be a part of that culture. So I started DJing, I started playing dance music, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But I got good enough to start DJing like in high school and like in homecomings and like eventually playing like clubs and warehouses. 
Around like 17, I was like, okay, I want to like learn how to make music. And then from that point, I was just kind of making rap beats. I was just doing like really simple like trap beats and like boom bap type stuff. And then as I got more advanced, I started trying my hand at doing like house music and like future bass and dubstep and all these things. And in my mind, I was like going to be this revered, like my favorite artist is Skrillex to give you some context, right? Like that's my favorite artist production wise. So I was like, I want to be like this big DJ thing. And like, you know, from, from 2015 to 2018, like, dance music was like the biggest it was like the shit so that that led me to going to icon which was like it's like the edm school like it's in burbank <laughs> like all the all the big like dance music acts would come out of there so i basically like dropped out of school and was like okay i'm gonna pursue being a dj and like a producer to the fullest extent but after a while and just being so heavily in that scene i felt i feel like i hit like a ceiling where I was like, okay, I don't really, do I want to make house music? Do I want to make dubstep? Do I want to make pop music? Do I want to do this? And it was like a really tough time for me creatively, just because I was like, I feel like I can make all these genres, but I really don't know the core what I want to do long term. So when I heard like early, like 100 decks, even like Sophie, and like just that scene that was happening, I was like, this literally feels like everything I've been trying to make, like all at the same time. Because I started with rap, and then I started doing all these dance genres and it was also like very reminiscent of like early pop punk music that I really like. And I think a lot of people within that scene like can share that same like sentiment. It feels like a, like a lawless genre where you can kind of throw everything that you love into it and it, it'll still make sense. So I was trying and I, I really like Dringing and like Blade and all those guys because I feel like they were an early contributor to like electronic and rap fusion. So the reason why I was drawn to that genre was because first of all, it felt really easy for me to make because I just felt like, okay, I can take these trance synths and I can put some rap drums under it and then I can give it like a house rhythm or something, you know? So it felt really natural to me and it felt really encompassing of all the things that I really like. And the first, I guess, step into it was like trying to work with like, because I, I don't know, in 2020, the hyper pop scene was very like, no one really could identify what it was. And I feel like people still have a hard time identifying what it is. But I like coming from a dance music background, that's really exciting to me. Because I think with dance music, it's really when there's like a breakthrough genre, everyone's kind of trying to figure out what it is and like push it farther. And I felt that like same level of excitement that I did for this scene that I did with dance music but in more of like an experimental pop lens. So that's always been really interesting to me about the genre. And, and it's very a mixture of everything that I love. Cause I grew up listening to like trance music and like nightcore and like pitched up shit. And then I was also like, I also was like a rap DJ for four years. So like just being able to mix all those things together just felt really natural to me. Nice. Y'all have the Boiler Room and Subculture show coming up, or Rilo has that show coming up. How are you preparing for that? And what's it like being a part of such like a, a big collaboration between like two titans of the live space? That is hilarious that asking right now, because literally the reason I was two minutes late is because I was working on my set at the moment. So I've, I've started preparing while I, so for this show, I want to be like, cause I'm, I'm moving into a new space just like musically, but also just, you know, like kind of just like in my own artist philosophy, just trying to expand in the new year. So I'm kind of seeing this show as my, what's my, it is my final show of the year, but also like kind of like the first step into like what I want to represent going into the new year. So I'm like being like really conceptual about it. I've been working with my friend Hash 
for the past, at this point, like a month, maybe like past like three or four weeks. So yeah, like around a month planning out what I'm going to wear, which I think this is the longest ahead of time. I've really considered like styling, the glam, the the hair, you know, I'm going to do my makeup myself. I'm going to do my hair myself, but at the same time being just like super intentional about what I look like on the stage and she's already drawn out some sketches of what the outfit should look like. And like, we've been kind of sourcing all these different pieces for the outfit over the past few weeks. And it's like almost ready. It's almost finalized. I've been like looking for like a nail girl. So my nails look like crazy Mm. flawless. Like I'm trying to just like be as pop as I can in terms of like main pop girl you know like from for what i can do trying to like really prepare because i mean this the way that i've been kind of set up it's been more in my live performance has been very like i incite rowdiness you know and which is fun and amazing and like definitely indicative of like the diy hyper pop space and sphere but i feel like for a show at this scale and what I know I want for myself out of next year, I just like want to level up. And I feel like I've kind of reached a ceiling with what I have been doing and it's been working, but you know, I've also been doing the same thing kind of more or less for the past year and a half. So I'm definitely ready to like move up and try to like elevate how I present to a crowd for my as far as my set list goes, putting in a lot of new songs that will be like out in the new year. Um, trying to figure out the set list literally before this. And as soon as I we're done with the zoo, I'm going to go right back to doing that and just like trying to figure out how to make the set as cool as possible. Well, I have like 30 minutes, 45 minutes on stage. So, you know, an average amount of time, nothing particularly new, but I want to figure out how I can like really maximize all of that time on the stage in ways that I haven't previously. So it's definitely a very exploratory space right now. And I'm a little nervous about the show just because I know that my approach to it is going to be a little bit different, which is great. But, you know, before big shows, like before like shows that like I feel a little bit like a fish out of water with. I definitely, like my first subculture show, I felt that way. My first heaven show felt that way. Uh, Definitely going to feel this way at the Boiler Room show. Even though I know tons of people on the lineup, it's going to be super fun. But I'm also like, oh, you know, it's the scale of it is just intimidating. Even if the show itself is the same as, you know, going to a subculture party or going to any other hyper pop party, really. So it's going well. Preparing for it's been good. It's been fun. Disc jockey's going to happen. And that's going to be a big moment, I think, because that's the first time I'll be be able to perform it while it's out. And yeah, I think it'll be, I don't think it'll go off for sure. Sick. Well, that's all the questions I have for y'all. Do y'all have any questions for me or is there anything else you wanted to touch on here? Just for me, it's been really fun promoting this song on TikTok. I will say that. I think this song has had the most engagement of all of the songs I've ever teased or tried to promote on TikTok. And that wasn't Originally, that wasn't even intentional. I was kind of just like shit posting on my TikTok and like tease this like the first week of September. And it got really, really good engagement. It's funny that you made a Charlie type song, Max, that like I didn't go with that day. Yeah. <laughs> it was like a the more EDM type thing. And then I posted it on TikTok and everyone's like, oh my God, is this Charlie? Is it Charlie in release? Like people yeah. still think this is Charlie, even though we went with a different beat entirely. So I yeah. think that's really fun. 
And yeah, I, I think not only been positive reception towards the song and people yeah. seem really, really want it. So that's kind of what inspired the idea to even make a music video in the first place was, you know, kind of just feeding more visual content, more things to post around and get people hyped on. So I'm really excited for the release of the song. We'll see how its wider release goes. Yeah. For me, like the song just feels like a full circle moment for me because, you know, the song is called Disc Jockey and like my background is DJing. I bought those like the CDJs that we're using in the video was something I got as a present, like a Christmas present when I was like 12. And like to you, like for me to like dig those out of my garage and like repurpose them for a song called Disc Jockey that's like very reminiscent of like Bass Hunter and like early like 2000s, like Eurodance is like really, really cool. So. I'm hoping, you know, people like it. I like it, you know, in the whole time of the music video. I didn't get tired of this, like listening to the song <laughs> once. And I don't think anyone there was either, even though we played it for like three hours straight. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy with the song and I'm excited for it. Mm -hmm. Sick. Well, I'm hyped as well. Thank you all so much for hopping on. And here's Disc Jockey in its full glory. Thank you all for listening to Absurdist Electric Chair. Make sure to check back in next week on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so we can electrocute your eardrums until they're fried all over again. I'm your host and executioner, Payne Dunn.
See you all next week.